Hello and welcome to Equipping the Saints. I'm Ryan, and thank you for joining us today. This is week four of our study of living a spirit-filled life. And what we're going to discuss today is Jesus's qualifications to be living a spirit-filled life, as well as God's approval of Jesus Christ in his baptism and in the beginning of his ministry. So you may be asking, why do we need to study this when we're talking about the Holy Spirit? Why do we need to talk about Jesus Christ right now? For one, he is the most important topic in the entire universe. But secondly is, it says something very specific in John chapter 16 that needs to be understood so that we can see why Jesus is qualified to dispatch the Holy Spirit to us so that we may be filled with his Spirit. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to John chapter 16, and we'll read a section here that explains this more thoroughly. Look with me, beginning in verse 7. The Word says, But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose to you what is to come. He will glorify me, for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said, he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. This is a very important piece of scripture, especially when it comes to the understanding of the dynamic between the Holy Spirit and Jesus Christ. We're going to go into what qualifies Jesus to be able to send the Holy Spirit and for the Holy Spirit to speak from the authority of Christ. But let's examine this scripture a little bit more carefully before we move on to the beginning of Jesus' ministry when he was baptized, because that is important to understand as well. So it says here in verse 7 that he's telling us the truth, which he always does, but he is prefacing this statement because it is extremely important for us to understand why he's saying what he's about to say. It is to your advantage that I go away. So what advantage was there for Jesus to depart? Well, he has other roles that he plays in our lives, right? We've discussed in previous studies that he is our high priest, and he is always living to intercede for us. He is the effectual word of our salvation, and through the Holy Spirit, he speaks to us. 
and he is working on our behalf from the heavenly realms. And not only that, but he does not indwell people like the Holy Spirit does. If he stayed on earth as a man, then he would be limited in his presence in a physical sense. He's God, so therefore he is omnipresent, but in some ways it would appear he would be limited. But he designed this means of salvation intentionally for the Holy Spirit to be the one to indwell us and to be the one who convicts us. Because it says here that if he did not go away, the Holy Spirit would not have come at all. And if you go through the Old Testament, any time the Holy Spirit fell upon people and they were filled with his power, they did amazing things. And without that power, they could not do those amazing things. So that is the key point that he's alluding to here, is he's tying the Holy Spirit's presence in the New Testament to the Old Testament. If you recall in the Old Testament, if you read your law and your prophets, O Israel, the Holy Spirit fell upon whom God chose, and they were filled with his power, and they did amazing things that glorified him. I am going to do the same thing to you who are called by my name. Jesus loves his sheep, and he will save his sheep, and he will give them the power to fight and resist evil. But if he does not leave, the Holy Spirit can't come. So that's why he had to leave. And it says that he's going to convict the world, in verse 8, of three different things. He's going to convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And then he explains more broadly what he means by each of these. In verse 9, he says that he is going to convict the world of sin because they do not believe in Jesus. So he's going to convict the world and show them how wrong they are in not believing in Jesus Christ. He's going to convict the world of righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. That's a very interesting statement. And so what he's trying to say is that if he went back to the Father, where he originally came from, it not only confirms his deity, but it also confirms that his job is finished here. His work on earth is complete. So we can't ever assume that Christ's work is unfinished. It is a completed work, and now the Holy Spirit is reminding those that he convicts of what he has already done. And then the third thing is that he convicts the world of judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. Who is the ruler of this world? At a glance, you would think Jesus, right? Because he is king. It says that he is king of kings and lord of lords, and that he has overcome the world. But that's not what it's talking about here. The ruler of the world that he is referring to here is Satan, someone who has appointed himself as ruler of this world, even though he is not going to maintain control of it for long. He has been judged. 
his fate is sealed. It has already been written what is going to happen to him and to all that follow him. And so that is what he's referring to here. The Holy Spirit is going to convict the world that Satan is going to fall, and all who follow him will fall with him. So do not follow him, follow Christ. So this is a beautiful truth that Jesus is telling us here before he goes to the cross. And it says in verse 12 that he has many more things to say, but they can't bear it yet. Why can't they handle it yet? Well, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. For one, the Holy Spirit hasn't come upon them, because without the Holy Spirit's activity in your life, you can't understand the spiritual truth that's within the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is the teacher. And like it mentions later on in the New Testament, the things of the Word of God are spiritually appraised. They are not things that you can discover through scholarly study or just through having a higher-than-normal intelligence. These things have to be revealed by God himself. And because the Holy Spirit hadn't come upon the disciples yet, they could not handle it yet. But secondly is, the work of Christ had not been finished yet, and so they still did not fully understand who Jesus was until he had died and rose again. Then, they would understand it much better. Then they would be able to receive the Son of God in that way. And then it says in verse 13 that when he comes, he will guide you into all the truth, which reinforces what I just said. And this is where it gets interesting, because the Holy Spirit is not going to speak on his own initiative. Much like how when Jesus was walking the earth, he mentioned many times that he doesn't speak from his own initiative, but instead he's speaking what the Father is telling him to speak. And in this way now, Christ has earned the right to be able to instruct the Holy Spirit what to say. So Christ has now put himself in a position where, not that the Holy Spirit is lesser than him, or that he is a servant of his, we can't understand it like that, because the Holy Spirit is God, Jesus Christ is God, the Father is God, and yet they are one, and yet they are three. So it's very complicated to try to understand in our mortal coil, but they are equal to each other. They are different, but they are equal, and they are in perfect communion with themselves. But they each have chosen a specific role to play in all of this. And so Christ has earned his right to be able to be the one to provide the information to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit's role is to educate and to train and to convict the world. It doesn't just say the Christians, but it says the world on everything about Jesus Christ. But here's where we, we have to ask the question. What qualified Jesus to be able to do this? We can go to the cross, and we can see that as the final point of where Jesus is now qualified. We can also see how the Holy Spirit was the one who raised him from the dead, and that is also another qualifying point. But where did it start? Where can we look to see where all this began? 
Turn with me to John chapter 1. We're going to look at a few verses in here, and then we're going to jump to Matthew to see his version of this story and put the two pieces together to get a more complete picture of what's going on here. Let's look at verse 29. The next day he, who this was John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Here we have seen the testimony of John the Baptist. So there's a couple things to examine here before we move to Matthew. First of all, he says that Jesus was coming to him and he called him the Lamb of God. Why is he calling him the Lamb of God? There's a couple of reasons for this. One could point you to the original Passover of the book of Exodus. What was involved in that? In order for the angel of death to not destroy the firstborn child of your family, they had to sacrifice an unblemished lamb and put its blood across the doorposts and lintels of the house in order to protect the family from this spirit that was going to kill their firstborn. So you have that slaughtered lamb being a symbol of Jesus Christ in the future, for he is our ultimate Passover lamb. So that comes to mind. And then the other thing is what you would see in a couple of places in the Old Testament during the prophets. He may be thinking of Jeremiah 11, verse 19, that says, I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. Or, more specifically, it was likely Isaiah chapter 53, verse 7, where it says about the Messiah, He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. So, John is perhaps saying here that Jesus is the fulfillment of those prophecies. But he understood that this was the Lamb of God. And the Lamb of God was going to take away the sin of the world. He was going to be the one to heal our sins, to forgive them, to cleanse them. That's that understanding in the original Greek, to take away, to cleanse the sin of the world, not just the sin of those who believe in God, but 
It's available to all. And that's something we have to understand. When God says the world, he's talking about the entire world. Because there are those beliefs that God only died for the elect, or God only died for certain people. But in reality, the common understanding is that God sent Jesus to die for the sins of the world. And that statement is a global, fully encompassed word, where it is talking about every human being. It is available to all. Not all will receive it, not all will be called, but it is available to all. In verse 30, John is recalling a statement he made to someone. It doesn't say who he said this to, but it says that this is he on behalf of whom I said. So he may have been telling a group of people or one person about this particular statement. After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Did he really exist before John? Well, the Bible says so, so it must be true, but how do we reconcile that? Because if you go back to the birth story of John the Baptist and Jesus, John the Baptist is older than Jesus is. It says earlier in Scripture that when Mary was pregnant with Jesus, she went to visit her cousin Elizabeth, who was the mother of John the Baptist. And when she was in the presence of Elizabeth, the baby in the womb was leaping with joy. Now this is interesting because it does say that he was going to have the Holy Spirit from the beginning. Before he was even born, the Holy Spirit was going to be in him. And that is a unique thing. That does not happen today. And so the Holy Spirit within John was leaping with joy from the womb. And so the rest of this can feel a little weird if we don't fully understand what John is saying here. Because he says, after me comes a man, so after him, someone who's younger than him, is going to be a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. So he came after, but he came before. So it depends on what you're talking about, right? He came after physically because he is younger in age than John, and they are cousins, right? So they know each other probably personally. But then it says that he existed before him because Jesus Christ is the Lord and he is eternal. So his spirit has existed since eternity past. He came in the form of a man but the Spirit of God never ceased to exist. So we see Jesus many times in the Old Testament, not necessarily by name, but we see his presence there. He's the one who spoke everything into existence in Genesis chapter 1. And there's many more places like that. So yes, he did come way before John. But this is where it gets a little strange if we don't understand this. Both verses 31 and 33 state that he did not recognize him. What does that mean, that he did not recognize him? Did he look different? Was the last time they saw each other, 
when they were kids and now that he's an adult he didn't recognize him because he's got all this facial hair now but what it seems to suggest is that he knew Jesus as a person but he did not know him as the Lord he did not know him as the Messiah and when these things happened then he was fully convinced that Jesus was the Messiah that's why it says here in verse 32, John testified. He is giving his eyewitness account. I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. But he who sent me, who sent him? God the Father sent him. God commissioned him to baptize with water. Or maybe it was even the Holy Spirit. But he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. This is the Messiah, which means the chosen one. This is the one that's been prophesied for thousands of years. So that's why he summarizes in verse 34, I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. He was convinced. Everything that he was told to look for happened. And you would think that's the end of the story. But there's one more element to this story that we need to understand. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking in chapter 3, beginning in verse 13. The word says, then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John, to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So as you can see, Matthew includes some details that John did not see. And so what's interesting about this section of Scripture is that John tried to stop Jesus from getting baptized. Because think about why this was very awkward for John. John is teaching a baptism of repentance. He is trying to baptize people in order to show them that they need to repent. They need to change direction. They need to turn around and stop sinning and follow God. But this is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is God incarnate. Why should I baptize the Lord when he is perfect? He has not committed any sin. He doesn't need to repent of anything. Why do I need to baptize him? And John didn't understand. So he's like, I don't understand, Jesus. 
I need to be baptized by you. I'm a sinner. You are perfect. You are sinless. Why do you need to be baptized? I should be baptized by you, but yet you're coming to me? And then what Jesus says is so important. He says, permit it at this time. Allow it this time. Why? For in this way, it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. The us, I believe, is between John and Jesus. But what he's saying here is so important for us today. Permit it because it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. In the law of Moses, how is one declared righteous? There's only one way, and that is to fulfill the law and keep it perfectly. Jesus Christ is the only person who has ever kept the law perfectly, has never failed in one point. That's important. Because James says that if we fail at one point in the law, we are guilty of all of the law. That means you have failed. You have flunked the test by failing one piece of the law. Jesus did not. And so by him perfectly keeping the law, including baptism, showing that he's baptizing not because he needs it, but he is doing it in obedience to the law, This is the beginning of his entire fulfillment of the law throughout the rest of his life. And because he did this, among everything else that he did in obedience, we are declared righteous by him. Again, we've talked about this in previous studies about double imputation. He imputed his salvation to us because of his death and resurrection but he has also imputed his righteousness to us because he kept the law perfectly. And this had to happen so that he could keep the law perfectly. But that's not the only thing that happened here. We see that the Trinity are present all together at once in a physical sense. And that's amazing to look at. We see Jesus Christ being God the Son, receiving in a bodily form the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove. And then you have God the Father speaking with an audible voice from heaven, saying that this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. The Trinity is all there. They are all there. And God himself in all three persons is confirming that Jesus is the real deal that he is truly the Messiah, and he is our only hope. This is what qualifies him to send the Holy Spirit to us. This is the beginning of it. The end is when he is crucified for us and rises from the dead. That secures his authority. That is what qualifies him as King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So that is why he has the authority to dispatch the Holy Spirit and to speak his words to the Holy Spirit, and that's what the Holy Spirit tells us. Such a beautiful truth, isn't it? 
So now let's talk about what it means to be baptized into Christ. There's two aspects of this that we need to understand, and we're going to end on those points. The first thing to understand is that we are not only baptized in the Holy Spirit, spiritually, but we're also baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. So turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Let's read the first seven verses of chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is freed from sin. So this is important to understand here. We, in the spiritual baptism, not in the water baptism, but in the spiritual baptism, are baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. So what is this talking about? This is talking about how we are not the same after we are spiritually baptized. And I'm going to explain that in more detail here shortly about what it means to be regenerated. But this regeneration, this spiritual baptism, transforms us. Paul writes that we become a new creature in Christ. So the beautiful thing about this, and he explains it in much more detail throughout his letters, is the reality that when you are transformed and your old self no longer exists, that old self dies. That old self no longer is alive. And therefore, the law of God does not apply to you anymore. And what I mean about the law of God, I'm talking about the law of Moses in the first five books of the Bible. We are no longer under that judgment. We are freed from that law. And therefore, we are free in Christ. And if we identify with Christ in his death, we identify with him in his resurrection. So everything that happens to Christ is going to happen to us. In the same way that Jesus died and rose again, so will we. If the Lord tarries, we will die too but we will be resurrected into an eternal, beautiful form. When Jesus rose from the dead, his body was different. He was familiar, but it was an imperishable body. It didn't have any blood. He was able to come and go instantly as he pleased. 
And so in the same way, we will have a body like that. So when we resurrect, so will we share in that same nature as Christ. We have been adopted into the family. And so we will share the same glory that Jesus has. He is far superior to us, but it will be similar. So we are no longer slaves to sin. We are now slaves of Jesus Christ. And that's beautiful to understand. So the baptism of Jesus was in submission to the Father and also to achieve all righteousness. And because of that, we are righteous in the sight of God. That is a beautiful reality to embrace. And lastly, let's look at the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3. Let's begin in verse 3. For we once also were foolish ourselves. And this is referring to our old nature, before we were saved. Disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God, our Savior, and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds, which we have done in righteousness. Why? Because we have none, right? Like we talked about prior, there are no works that save us, but only the work of God that saves us. But according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy statement. And concerning these things, I want you to speak confidently, so that those who have believed God will be careful to engage in good deeds. These things are good and profitable for men. Amen on that. Amen. That is the only thing you can say. Praise God. He saved us. We don't deserve it. There's nothing we did to contribute to our salvation. But he saved us by his grace. And through his mercy, we are now heirs to the throne of God. So it all starts with the washing of regeneration. It all starts with the renewal, the transformation from our old self to our new selves. We have great hope and great expectation of what's coming in the future. And because this is trustworthy, like it says in verse 8, then we can speak confidently. We know this for a fact that it's going to happen. Not only that, but we are able to engage in good deeds, not because they save us, but because the world needs to know Christ through our actions and through the words that we say. It says these things are good and profitable for men. Yes, it's good for us because we're being obedient to God, but they're good for those who do not know who Christ is so that they can learn who Christ is and understand the reality that they need a Savior. This is what qualifies Christ to send the Holy Spirit. And this is the activity of the Holy Spirit 
to bring this reality to us and to remind us of the sins of our lives, the righteousness that Christ has imputed upon us, and to help us live a godly life. All of these things are brought to us by the Holy Spirit who has indwelt us, if we are indeed his children. This is the beautiful reality of God, that this is what he's done for his people. We cannot let this go to waste. We cannot underestimate and underappreciate what God has done for us. The only logical thing to do from here on is to live in obedience to Jesus Christ and to do the things that please him. We are no longer our own. We were bought for a price, which means we are under new ownership. Our owner, our master, is the Lord Jesus. And the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us understand that to its fullest reality. Spend some time in the coming days praying and meditating on these truths. Pray to the Father for understanding and wisdom in these matters, and to be convicting us of our sins actively. May we have eyes to see and ears to hear in the coming days, when the challenges around us will amount, the pressures of life will increase, be it the grace of God is ever-present. May we cling to that and not anything else. And with that, I hope you enjoyed today's lesson, and we'll pick this up next week. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.